You are listening to Capital Musings, the official podcast of the United Nations Capital Development Fund, UNCDF. If you have listened to our previous podcasts, thank you very much. And if you haven't, you could find those on our platforms. They include interviews with our head of partnerships, policy and communications, Esther Pan Sloan, policy advisor, Samuel Horitz. And our most recent podcast was with Jaffer Machano, our head of municipal investment finance. Today, we are going to engage in a really important and critical conversation about not just financial inclusion, but financial inclusion in the context of the displaced, which is critically important given the record number of people on the planet that are currently displaced. We are now above the 70 million mark, according to UNHCR. So, But we're also going to focus on an aspect of that challenge that may very well be overlooked, and it's financial inclusion. And with that, I couldn't think of a better guest to help us navigate through that discussion than Pamela Easer. She is our financial inclusion expert on women and forcibly displaced uh, and an absolute true thought leader within UNCDF. So, Pamela, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So I'd like to start with an open-ended question, queuing off my previous point about how I think for people who are interested in the subject but not necessarily professionals in the space, when they think of the situation of refugees, they have this vision of – it's a physical vision. It's about living in camps. It's about potentially being separated from their loved ones. But the challenge of financial inclusion, both in the immediate term and then in the long term, may very well be overlooked, again, if you're not working in the space the way you are. So I'd love to hear some framing to talk about that experience of being financially included if you are someone who's been displaced. So when we look at financial inclusion across the globe right now, there are still billions of people that don't have access to financial services. And most of them are rural women, smallholder farmers, and forcibly displaced. And the forcibly displaced, if they are displaced across country boundaries, have the added hindrance of most of them not having identification. So without identification, you cannot open a bank account. You cannot buy a SIM card in most countries, and therefore you can't have mobile money access. So the forcibly displaced, although they're similar in terms of majority living in rural areas, majority are women and children, majority are smallholder farmers, they have this added barrier to accessing financial services. So first and foremost, we would like to see governments and UNHCR work to provide identification for these populations and also work with the financial sector in their countries to help the banks and the mobile money operators to understand the market that is there to provide services to financially displaced. Because in terms of the economic livelihoods of these people versus other rural nationals, there really isn't a big difference. So someone can save whether they're a refugee versus just a rural smallholder farmer, but they need to have the identification first and foremost before they can move forward. But it sounds like also a a critical part of this effort is demonstrating to financial service providers that, in fact, that they should be involved in this space and that this is a constituency that they should be dealing with. So just asking an incredibly basic question, what are the misconceptions that financial service providers have in terms of why they should not be uh, providing these services or these instruments to refugee populations? 
So a lot of financial service providers believe that they are not legally allowed to work with forcible. Not dissidents. legally allowed. Wow. Right.、Okay. So that's why I'm saying that the governments and the regulators need to get the word out that. If in fact in their country they allow forcibly displaced and refugees to be financially included, in some countries it's actually not. They are、lot. legally prohibited. They would be legally prohibited. Yeah. 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 And so your work, and we're going to get specifically into your work, but your work also involves policy advocacy to basically change the legal and the regulatory environment so that financial services providers can provide those. So we've been talking a lot about. The immediate situation, but I'd love to hear from you about how just the reality of being someone who's forcibly displaced, what that means in terms of their long-term capability to be integrated into a formal economy, to be able to have even the prospect of being able to support themselves economically in the future. It's really a country by country discussion.、Sure. So let me give you two examples of where we work. In Uganda, the government is probably the the poster child of all countries around the world. They give refugees land, they、hmm. give them tools, they give them seeds, they give them identification. So these people are welcome、sure. into the country, and the government wants them to stay. It's not that they want them to stay, but they're happy if they do stay.、Sure. It's not an issue. Whereas in another situation, Tanzania. The government is not supportive of hosting the refugees. They would like the refugees to leave. Therefore, they are limited to the camps. They do not have access of freedom of movement. The mobile money agents that were operating out near the refugee camps have been closed down by the government. Common markets where the refugees and the host community would come together and buy and sell each other's goods have been closed down by the government. So. In that situation, it's very difficult for a refugee to have a livelihood and stop receiving handouts from, let's say, UNHCR or, or other organizations. Whereas in Uganda, there's great potential. Sure. Okay. So actually, I think this is a great place to kick off into your work, your programmatic work. So share with us the specific work you're doing, where you're doing it. How you're driving financial inclusion for displaced populations, and also for host communities, I should add. So we'd love to hear specifically about the work streams that you're driving to address this challenge. So we work very closely with UNHCR, and about a year, year and a half ago, UNHCR came out with their CRRF, which is the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework. Which has a number of pillars, one of which is livelihood development for refugees and host communities. And I do want to emphasize that all of our work is for both host and refugees. In Tanzania and Rwanda, we're working in camps and also in the outside of the camps with the host communities to create informal savings groups of women. And we're teaching them financial education and digital literacy using tablets and SMS approaches and mobile money simulators, so that they're comfortable using mobile money if, in fact, they have that opportunity. Which in Rwanda they very much do, in Tanzania they don't at this point in time. And ultimately, what we would like to do is to link those savings groups into the formal financial sector, which in Rwanda we will be able to do. In Tanzania, again, it's. Not particularly in the immediate horizon. In、uh, Uganda, we have very large program working with refugees 
as you may know, Uganda is the largest hosting country in Africa for refugees. They have over 1.3 million refugees. And as I said, the country is very open arms towards refugees and what refugees receive. So in Uganda, we're working on a large program to create digital economies for rural markets, not specifically for refugees, but refugees are a part and parcel of this project. So we work with the telcos to build towers out in these rural areas, mobile towers, so that there's reception, so that mobile money can be available to these populations. We work on identification. We work on getting mobile phones and SIM cards into the hands of refugees and the host communities and helping to build out a whole digital ecosystem. Because one of the issues when you're trying to reach really rural markets with digital digital money, digital services, is that if you provide someone with an e-wallet, an electronic wallet, and they have their money digitally, but they don't have any place to spend it digitally, means they have to cash out. Cashing out costs money. So it makes digital financial services not as cost effective as it could be. So we try to work with merchants and other service providers so that they accept electronic money so that there's a whole ecosystem and you don't have to cash out, cash in on your money and have this extra cost. I mean, if we were swap out refugees and basically talk about any other market situation, we would talk about the same thing. It seems like it's about creating a frictionless experience and creating the digital infrastructure that could create this ecosystem where it becomes frictionless. Exactly. It's fascinating. I actually want to step back because you outlined several buckets. Obviously, you were talking about creating the digital ecosystem. I do want to go back to the informal savings groups because it seems that... If I'm not mistaken, and if I am, please say so, the building of the informal savings groups is kind of the first step towards the end goal of formal financial inclusion. So I'd love to hear, number one, if you could talk a little bit more about the importance of creating these savings groups, then literally, how do you do it? Savings groups have kind of come a long way in the last five, 10 years. Informal groups have come together all over the world in Twantins, Askas, Raskas, Chamas, many different names for these informal groups. But a number of international NGOs have perfected the methodology. So typically we're working with some INGOs and more and more so with local CBOs, community-based organizations, to create these savings groups where you go out to a community, be it refugee or host or possibly even mixed together, and people are taught the general idea of what these savings groups can do for you, and they come together on their own. It's not as if we choose who is in what group. And typically, there's 70 to 80 percent women. There's also youth groups that have sprung up. And the NGOs, be it international or local, work these savings groups over a 9 to 12-month period, having them meet typically weekly, where they pool their savings and then they lend amongst themselves, and they determine the interest rate that they want to charge themselves. They also usually have a social fund that they put a little bit of money aside each week. So if someone has a death in the family or some emergency hospital bill that they can't pay, the social fund is used to pay that. So these savings groups have money brings people together. So that is the glue that brings it together. But it has been shown that the groups also help to create agency and voice for women. So it's a way of economically empowering women, particularly rural, underserved, typically illiterate, and innumerate women. So we believe that 
by using these informal savings groups and bringing additional skills into the groups. So, for example, like UNFPA uses savings groups to provide maternal child health messaging. EFAD uses savings groups to provide agricultural messaging. We use the savings groups first and foremost for financial inclusion messaging. So there's a lot of things you can do to empower these groups of people that aren't getting the resources that they need. Right. I think that dovetails nicely into you're leveraging digital for this purpose and not just digital tools and digital financial services. I would love to hear a little bit about the tools that you're using in the camps to drive inclusion. The digital financial services space, one of the biggest issues is financial education and digital literacy. So a lot of people don't understand how to save, how much to save, um, what an interest rate is, how they're going to pay back loans if they do take a loan and they're afraid of loans. And so what we've created is an app that is available on the phone or on a tablet. We've bought some tablets and have left them in community centers that are in the refugee camps. And the women's groups, when they come together, they can use the tablets. So it provides a way to provide standardized training without always having to have a, a physical person there. The groups can discuss the lessons that they're learning. And the fun part, I think, is the mobile money simulator, where they can actually pretend to be sending money to someone and see what happens. You know, what do they have to key in, their PIN or this or that? And when the time does come, when they can be formally financially included and they can have access to mobile money or an e-wallet from a bank, they won't be so afraid of using this technology. Yeah. As probably a number of our listeners already know, the mandate of UNCDF has the agency focus on least developed countries or LDCs. Having said that, when we talk about displaced persons, obviously it's a challenge that goes well beyond LDCs. So I'm curious, are the tools that you're using, have they already been universalized? Well, the example would be the Middle East with Jordan accepting tons of Syrian refugees. Sure. And yes, they're using digital financial services. They're using digital IDs. They take pictures of the iris mm -hmm. to identify people. So there's a lot of work going on in terms of bringing digital tools to this population. Okay. Okay. So we are down to the last couple of questions, and the penultimate question is the same one I ask to everyone, which is, I'd love for you to take a few minutes to talk about the journey that brought you to UNCDF. On a personal basis? Well, whatever the journey is that brought you there, she's smiling as the question <laughs> is asked. Okay, so... My first job out of graduate school was Wall Street investment banker. Wow. And was not so happy in that position. I didn't feel like I was really contributing to society in any way. So did a personal self-journey and in that discovered microfinance, and this is a long time ago because I am old, <laughs> and I actually started working with international NGO called Mercy Corps, mm -hmm. which at the time that I started was very, very small. And I went to Bosnia and started what is now the largest microfinance institution in Bosnia. And one of Mercy Corps' core tenants is to work kind of at the humanitarian development nexus. So when I went to Bosnia, it was immediately after the war ended, and there was still, well, even today, Bosnia is divided into two, actually three entities. But when I first started there, there was roadblocks set up, and it was as if you were crossing into a different country. And one of the things that I'm most proud of 
when we started operating the microfinance operations was we worked in all three entities with all ethnicities. And when we spun off the department into a locally registered organization and created a board of directors, the board of directors were also from all ethnicities and lived in all areas of the country. So it was a great example of not only what financial services can provide to a war-torn country, but also a way to mend, repair some broken relationships. Sure, sure. So after that experience, I worked at a global level with Mercy Corp as their director of financial services with a number of microfinance institutions that they had started, and then saw this job advertised at uh, UNCDF and started here uh, a little over 10 years ago. That's great. And as you know, you are not the only person in UNCDF that started in the financial sector and is in fact leveraging that experience in the space of economic development. And obviously, it goes well beyond UNCDF. So thank you for sharing that. So down to the last question. And one of our guests talked about, it was Andrew Fife, who's the head of evaluation. And he was talking about how We often talk about the last mile, and he talks about how there are evaluations that are being done. And he had a great phrase. He was talking about in the last mile of the last mile of the last mile because we're drilling down into the country and then down to the town and then down to a specific sector of a town in order to do an evaluation. And I reference this because – It would seem to me that an argument can be made that if you want to really talk about the last mile of the last mile, then it's the populations that you're dealing with. So what I'd love to hear from you to wrap is just to talk about the importance of the work in this space, but specifically as a driver of achievement of the SDGs. Because I think there's a lot of different constituencies that we talk about supporting for the purposes of SDG achievement, small, medium-sized enterprises and things of that nature. But what is, and it's probably fairly obvious, but just draw that connection between bringing refugee populations as well as host communities into financial inclusion and how that will drive the SDGs. So as you're well aware, the SDGs are first and foremost to reach the furthest behind first. So it's easy to provide, easy, <laughs> in quotes, to provide a, a loan or a savings account for someone in the capital city of a country. But when it comes to reaching the most rural areas of a country, which is typically where the refugees are located, at least in the African context, it's very difficult financially to get the private sector to go there. So we are proving the case that through digital financial services, through financial education and digital literacy trainings, that we can bring these populations into the formal financial sector. And therefore, the hypothesis is that less money will be needed from donors. You want to be able to determine your own future, and financial services are one of the tools for you to do that. I think that's a great way to close. Thank you for a really insightful and important uh, elaboration on what is a critical challenge that you're addressing and doing in a, in a thoughtful way. That was Pamela Eser with UNCDF. Thank you for your time. And that is it for Capital Musings. Capital Musings is a production of the Partnerships Policy and Communications Unit of the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Special thanks to Victoria Garidi and Carlos Macias for, as always, helping to bring this podcast up and running. And you will be hearing from us soon. Thank you. Thank you.